Would you turn to Mark 14? We're still going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse. And uh, uh, now we find ourselves in Mark 14 uh, verse 26. And I titled this message, The Danger of Self-Confidence. And yet again, another stabbing in the heart kind of message. And this is the passage, the principle that we would draw out of this. But there's no other principle that we can draw out of this passage, but the danger of self-confidence. Just by way of introduction, the one thing that sets Christians apart from all other religions is that we are convinced in our hearts that we are in need of a savior. We're, we were blinded to the depth of how, how evil we were. And then God opened our eyes. And we realized the height of our sin, the weight of our guilt crushed us. The nakedness of our souls shamed us. And when we couldn't hold it any longer, from the very depth of our hopeless state, we cried out, is there such a Savior who is mighty enough and kind enough to save us? Who is the life God that can save our drowning souls from the sea of sin and death? Is there any all-time warrior, undefeated champion that is able to redeem us and to set us free from the clutches of Satan? And yet again, God opened our eyes and we saw the author of our faith. Our hearts beheld our, if you like, divine gladiator. The God of war who fought our battle, disarmed Satan and killed death and won us to himself as his eternal trophies. We see all of this and our hearts rejoice over his strength. It is by his strength that we live, move, and have our beings. It is by his strength that we can be content walking closely behind him in every step of the path of obedience that he set before us. Always depending on him, relying on him, and there is not a moment of our lives that we're not convinced of our desperate need for him. What sets Christianity apart from all other religions is that we're always convinced that we are in need of a Savior, not just for our salvation, but in every day of our lives. And the exact opposite is true. Well, we cannot be more like the world than when we live our lives as though we have no need of a Savior. So in one hand, nothing pleases God more than to see his children live their lives in the shopping malls or at work or on the way back home and all relationships together. Every aspect of their lives is like a a musical keynote that when put together, it brings out this wonderful song that we know of, I need thee, I need thee 
every hour I need thee. And on the other hand, nothing displeases our Heavenly Father than to see His children live as though we are self-sufficient. That there is really not a a need for a savior to depend on, no deliverer to hold on to, no shepherd to guide. Such was the church of Laodicea. If you recall Revelation 13 verse 17, where Jesus said to this church, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In fact, in verse 16, a verse earlier, Jesus says that he causes his stomach to be sick. It turns his stomach upside down and he feels kind of like vomiting. This virus, self-confidence is the same virus that we'll see here now in the disciples. Disciples were infected with this kind of virus that, that is called self-confidence. And we start reading from verse 26. It says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I I will not. Right, Peter. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. (laughs) No, not Peter. (laughs) Verse 31, but Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. This is a disease that is called self-confidence. What do we know about this disease? What are the symptoms? Let me list for you some of the symptoms of self-confidence. Number one, it causes inflammation in the brain. The sick person experiences enlargement to his head. Two, blindness to the spiritual eyesight. Hallucination, where the patient feels he's living false reality. And if the sick believer does not snap out of it, if he doesn't repent of this self-confidence, no matter how much he feels and he thinks he's growing in the Lord, no matter how much is self-deceived to think this way. In reality, he is malnourished, he is starving, and he is useless to the master. 
In fact, he would be an obstacle, a hindrance to expand his father's kingdom. Needless to say, he would break the heart of all of his brothers and sisters. And like all the 11 disciples, they, he will fall away. Or even worse, like Peter, he would deny the Lord. Oh, how we all need to search our hearts again this morning. Are we keeping God against this disease of false assurance? This self-confidence. Are we living in such a way that our wives and children, our workmates, and people around us are convinced that we are in need of a Savior. They can see that we are convinced that we are in need of a Savior. That our dependence is not in ourselves, but in God. Well, I pray as we go through this passage that any microcosm, milligram of self-confidence would be exposed and that we would repent of it and that we would fling it away from ourselves. And in the name of Jesus, that we would trample upon this false self-reliance with our crosses on our back, and the glory of Christ would fill our eyes, that we would draw our strength only from Christ. In such a way that when the world takes a look upon our lives, they would say, here is a man, here is a woman whose dependence is in God, convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that they need a Savior. The outline for today, again, is simple, three points. We're going to look at the lesson, the test, and the result. What does that mean? Well, as we continue, it will unfold. But first things first, I want to give you just a quick background to connect the last passage to this passage. It's Thursday night, Passion Week. The Passover feast is at hand. Judas just left the upper room, and now it's Jesus and the 11 disciples are continuing on celebrating this feast as Jesus drops a bombshell. He pressed the red button on the old covenant, and then he flicked on the switch of the new covenant. His own blood overshadows superior way above all Old Testament practices because it's actually the blood of Christ that brings about forgiveness. It was never the blood of bulls or rams. This was the last supper and yet the first communion. And then we come to the first, to, to, to the lesson, the first point. Why lesson? Because what we're about to read is an educational session conducted by our Lord Jesus in the school of holiness. The classroom is in the upper room. 
The master teacher was Jesus. The students were the 11 disciples. And the lesson that is to be learned, it's simple. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in me. That is the lesson of this passage. So we read verse 26, and it says, after singing a hymn. Now, what does that mean? What happened at that time? Well, the usual practice of the Passover feast, they get together and at the end of the, of the feast celebration, they would sing a, a song and it would be a psalm. And at this point, it would be Psalm 118. And when they sing 118, if you have any collection, what it says, it's the praises of our God. It begins a psalm of, by saying that he is good, that God is good. That his, live ever, that his loving kindness is everlasting. And so it invites people. This psalm calls people and it, it draws people to place their confidence in God and not in man. In verse 9 of this psalm, let me read it to you. It says, it is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. And what a glorious psalm, and it is fitting for such occasion. Why? Because immediately after the singing of that song, Jesus begins a series of messages to his disciples. You won't find them in Luke or Matthew or Mark. You will find them in the Gospel of John from, ver- from chapter 14 to chapter 17. And what is fascinating about these messages that Jesus taught his disciples is that they all lead to the one and the same conclusion. What is the conclusion? Again, don't have confidence in yourself. Have your confidence rooted in me, in God. For example, let me give you a few examples. In John 15 and verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. And the immediate, the verse after that, Jesus would say, apart from me, you can do nothing. In the gospel of John 14, where Jesus says in verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or, or in verse 18, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And you recall when, when Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit, and he referred to the Holy Spirit as your helper. That he will teach you all things. He will guide you into all truth. He will strengthen you. And it is as though that Jesus in the upper room, that he held one and the same nail. And he aimed to fix it on their foreheads. And then he picked a hammer, the hammer of his word, and he started hammering away again and again. And with every strike of this hammer, it is kind of like he's saying, don't rely on yourself, rely on me. What a beautiful Message for all of us to take to heart. Can we ever say 
that we ought not to be re reminded any longer of such lesson. This is so important, not just for the disciples, but even for all of us. What a great lesson to be reminded over and over and over again that we must not find our confidence in ourselves, that we place all our confidence in God. Right? That's the lesson. And after the lesson is done, what comes after the lesson? Test. Examination time. Now, uh, this feast would have finished by just before midnight. So Jesus would have had from 6 p.m. or just thereafter until just before 12 a.m. And he had extensive chat. It would have been John 14 to 16. It would have been a summary of what Jesus spoke to these people. And after all these wonderful teaching sessions or hours, Jesus, this great teacher, he took his students as though by the hand and now taking them for an excursion. Moving to another place where he's about to test them. To see, are they good students? Have they absorbed straight into their hearts what Jesus has been trying to teach them? Or not? So, in verse 26, continues and it says, They went out to the Mount of Olives. So they left the upper room, traced their way back, to the temple that would have crossed over the temple and went down uh, the temple mount. And if you can just imagine, it was late night. And so it must have been very dark. But yet at the same time, it must have been a very busy time. Many Jews would have been out in the street, still celebrating a Passover feast. There would have been lots of animals, many lambs that... Um, uh, are about to be slaughtered the very next day. And so there would have been a lot of noise, so much um, business going on. And so Jesus took his disciples away from that noise and went down the Temple Mount, crossed the valley that separates Temple Mount from the, um, to the Mount of Olives and then climbed that Mount of Olives. In this valley, just to bring you back and to see that scenery in your mind, it would have been um, filled with blood streaming into that valley, coming down from the temple because that evening was the Passover for the Galileans and there would have been thousands of lambs that would have been slaughtered. And there is a, 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 a cave, sorry, a, a pathway for that blood to spill out of the temple through or um, directly to that valley. So fresh blood. And they crossed over and they climbed Temple Mount. And while the disciples were on their way <clears throat> to the Garden of Gethsemane, in that quietness, away from the distraction and noise, Jesus dropped yet another bombshell. Here is a test in a form of a statement, basically. Verse 27. 
says, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, fall away, meaning you will all forsake me. You will flee. Jesus very soon will be captured. They'll be under pressure. Fear will fill their hearts. And they don't want to be nailed to the crosses next to Jesus. So Jesus says, you will all fall away. You will distance yourself from me. You will desert me. You will deny me. Jesus would have to go to the cross alone. Now, why would they deny him? How come? He explains to us, it's very simple. He says, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. The great shepherd, Jesus Christ, is going to be taken out of sight. Then what hope do the sheep have when they're all alone without their good, loving shepherd who would protect them? The sheep, as we know, are dumb in and of themselves, right? They're stubborn. They don't know how to protect themselves from the enemy. So when you take down the shepherd, what are you left with? Just... A good lamb barbecue, all right? That's all that you're left with, just a lamb steak. And so also when we take our eyes off our Lord Jesus, what happens? All hell breaks loose over our heads, true? Uh, This is the ABC of Christian living. This is like uh, Peter when the Lord commanded him to come out of the boat and walk in the water. And so long as Peter kept his eyes upon Jesus Christ, he accomplished the impossible, right? He walked in water. But what happened the moment Peter took his eyes off Jesus? The moment Peter took his eyes off Jesus and he placed him upon his circumstances and upon his trials in life, he was a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to sink, right? Uh, Well, we need to understand, and the principle of this, and Jesus did not move away, but he continued in the same subject, that he is the fountain of all strength, and those who place their confidence in him drink as much as their heart is content, and they will be strong. Take Jesus out of the picture, all that is left is just a dried up, leaking, broken wells. That hold no water. That's exactly the lesson that Jesus taught in the upper room. Without me, you can do nothing, remember? So what Jesus is saying basically is this, that I'll be struck. And because you don't have strength in and of yourselves, you will be scattered. But praise be to Christ. He continues on and he tells us that his strike will be temporal. It's not eternal. And therefore, what does that mean? Well, it means also that their falling away will only be short-lived. And Jesus assured him of this in verse 28. And he says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. I will come back into the picture. And because I will come back into the picture and you are in my presence, you will have strength to be restored back. Resurrection. Resurrection means restoration. Jesus will restore them back. 
Praise God for his infinite strength. Praise God that not even death or Satan can stand against Jesus Christ. He is so powerful. And we ought to praise him for that. Now, this is the test. It's a test in the form of a statement. Right? So he summarized and gave him a practical um, scenario. I'm out of the picture. You'll fall. And when I come back, you'll come back to me. Simple. How should a Christian respond to this? A disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. What should he say about this? Will the disciples pass the test or not? So we come to the result. Verse 29. But Peter. This but is a capital but. You You should capitalize and underline it. But Peter said to him, here comes our Peter. The disciple that we've heard before so many times with foot and mouth disease. But Peter said to him, Peter, if you remember, his principle in life is to talk first, think later. He's generally the spokesman of the 12 disciples. He's the leader of the flock, if you like, in in the absence of Jesus. And now he's speaking, but this time it's different. He's not speaking on their behalf. He's speaking for himself. He says, even though all may fall away, yet, what? I... Me, I will not, I'll not fall away, Jesus. In fact, Luke 22, Luke fleshes this out more and it says in verse 33, but he said to Jesus, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Here is self-confidence in a full-blown scale. Here is this ugliness of false assurance with all of its deception and delusion delusion outlook peter when he spoke these words yeah, these words with were mixed with bad breath and he couldn't smell it but it stunk the whole place self-confidence is ugly it is filthy had it Peter go with the test. He got a big fat F on his test result. Failed it big time. That nail that Jesus tried to hammer, it just fell off Peter's head. So stubborn. It left no dent on it. We want to see from Peter's response. Three aspects of this ugly sin of self-confidence. And I pray as we assess Peter, as we go and and examine Peter, before we throw our stones at Peter too quick, too soon, brothers, sisters, I plead with you, let us examine ourselves. Is it Peter 
in our hearts? Is there self-confidence in us? Would we respond the way Peter responded? What do we know about self-confidence in this? Number one, self-confidence is unteachable. The only teacher self-confidence people listen to and are taught by is their false triune God, me, myself, and I, nobody else. So please note, Jesus said to Peter, you will all fall away. And that included Peter, right? But Peter, Peter knew better than Jesus, right? And, and he kind of felt like correcting the all-wise teacher. And it's kind of Peter is saying to Jesus, 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 just let's pause here. I think you didn't check your uh, divine crystal ball properly. Can you just double check again what will happen? You, you, your fault, look, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I commend you. He says, they, even though they may all fall, you, your, your full knowledge, Jesus, is it's good. It's almost as good as, as my full knowledge, but it's not quite. So let me help you out, Jesus, here, because you got something wrong in your doctrine. Because you don't know this heart of mine. It seems like it. You just don't know me well. Jesus says, you will all fall. And Peter says, no. Jesus, we agree to disagree, okay? <laughs> Brothers, sisters, let us be greatly warned. Self-confidence makes us unteachable. And if God, even God, if he has different view from us, self-confidence says even God can be wrong. How come? Because my view is definitely right. I'm confident of that. The audacity of self-confidence. That even now, the word right beneath our nose. And you bring to these self-confident people the very word of God. Thus saith the Lord. He must be wrong. Uh, they may not say it with their mouth. But you just take a look at their lives and their attitude. I'm not talking about just momentary falling. Their attitude. And you see, unteachable. Because self-confidence is unteachable. Those people, they have no accountability. They don't have anybody to submit to. They can never be corrected. They wouldn't accept any correction. Why? <laughs> they are walking as though they know all truth. They are the source of all truth. Second thing that we know about self-confidence in this passage, self-confidence can only see the sin of others, but not their own. Please note again what Peter says to Jesus. Even though all may fall, these guys over here on this side, they all may fall. Yet I will not. 
Yes, Jesus, all the disciples have issues except for me. I'm the exception to the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember John and James and they had an anger problem. Matthew, the Levi, the tax collector, oh boy, he loves money. He would sell his parents for a denarii if he could. I get it. I get it. You know, if you go, Jesus, they're all weak. They can't stand by themselves. They will fall away. But I'm better. I'm better than them. I'm the best one in this group of people. They all need you. That's for sure. But me? No, I'm strong on my own. I'm brave. I'm brave. Look at my sword, Jesus. I've got a sword, Peter would say. I'm smart. I have my moments. I have my moments. There are hiccups here and there. But all in all, I'm your man. If you're looking for anyone to take over uh, your mantle after your departure, look no further. All right? You don't worry about me, Jesus, and what happens to me. You, you just go ahead and do what you have to do to save the world. I got your back. The arrogance of self-confidence and the deception of self-confidence. Well, because self-confident Christians can easily recall the sins and have a very good memory of the weaknesses and the flaws of others. But when it comes to them, they have an amnesia. What do they do? They find it hard to trust anybody. But they find it very easy to trust who? Themselves. So what's the outcome? I pray that we open our hearts and see this reality. The only possible outcome of this is you have individualistic Christians who live their lives on their own and they think on their own they can take on the world and even put the fire of hell on their own apart from brothers to help them. You see these Christians live in their own little islands they don't invite anyone into their lives. Nobody really knows much about them. And they keep social distancing. The masks are on. Social distancing are there. And they hardly associate with other believers. It's like Peter. He would say to Jesus, Jesus, don't worry, Jesus. I got this. It's in the bag. I got it, Jesus. Don't worry about me. So these false confident Christians, they are the, I got you this kind of Christians. They trust in themselves. It's the only people that they trust in. Self-confidence. Unteachable. Self-confidence, very hard to see their own sin, so easy to see the sin of others. And number three, self-confidence is stubborn. So we continue now, verse 30. And Jesus said to him, 
truly I say to you, truly I say to you, mark my words, Peter, read my lips, that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. This very night, not next week, not even next day. Peter, when you're most confident of your loyalty to me, this very night at your height of your own confidence, in just a handful of hours, what would you do? You yourself. I'm looking and zooming right into you. You yourself, not just you, you yourself will deny me not once or twice, three times. Peter, you're claiming that your most loyal disciple will guess what, Peter? In just a few hours, you will prove to be the least loyal. How come? Everybody else will fall away, but you? You, Peter, you will deny me. And what happened to Peter? What does the Bible tell us? In fact, if you look at Mark 14, I believe verse 71, that Peter would be casting and cursing and and swearing. Ouch. Proverbs tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So Jesus here now, it's like he dropped his uh, hammer and it kind of felt like he started slapping Peter across his face, hoping that we would, he would wake him up from this hallucination of this self-confidence that, he's, that is possessing him. Now, how would a, a follower of Jesus Christ respond to this? W- would he at least begin to doubt his own false conviction. No way. You see, self-confidence has got a strong spell. It takes a lot more than just a slap across the face to snap out of it. And we see this in verse 31. Let's continue reading. It says, but Peter, again, but. He's, he's insistently disagreeing. You give him anything in his hand. No, 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 no. But Peter kept saying insistently. Wow. Insistently. That's the word kept saying. It wasn't just a statement. He continued on and on trying to help Jesus with his own doctrine. He's got Jesus' systematic theology and he started with a, a red line, a red pen, crossing and making marks and saying, look, this is where you got it wrong, Jesus. Self-confident people. No matter. You show them the scripture. No way. They're not, they're not moving away from their position. So Peter is saying to Jesus, no matter how many times you hammer this nail, Jesus, you're wrong. I'm confident. I'm right. Right? And look what he says here. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I'm not changing. I'm not butting off. My conscience is clear. I've made up my mind. Wow. What is Peter like? 
Peter's like this kind of person who's walking with closed eyes. His ears are full of wax, yet he's so confident he's heading the right direction. Brothers, if we have a Christian like this, if we have a brother in Christ, if we call him a brother, who is so self-confident that he would even refuse to hear from Jesus himself, what hope do we have if we teach him anything? How in the world are we ever expecting that he would listen? Now, Peter's not the only one who's guilty of this self-confidence. The last sentence, it says, and they all were saying the same thing also. Everybody jumped in and everybody wanted to correct Jesus. Now, this disease is so contagious. It infected all the 11 disciples. Brothers, let's bring this home. And I want to ask you if, those disciples fell victim to this deadly virus even after three long years being with Christ, him teaching and preaching day and night. Could it be possible that there is self-confidence in us? Could it be that there is Peter in us? What a terrible sin, don't you think? What a horrible, evil, wicked thing to have this self-confidence. You want to stunt your spiritual growth? Don't look for this sin. Don't fight against it. You know, any other kind of sin, we'll admit, it will humble us, it will break us. But once we're self-confident, what hope do we have? Well, conclusion. Well, one might be sitting and reflecting on Peter and he would say, oh, I thank God after hearing his story. I thank God that I don't have this self-confidence in me. <laughs> How come? Oh, my confidence is in God. I, I, just, I just sang a song about it. We read a psalm. My confidence is in God. Well, that's good. That's very good. You're convinced that you are in need of Jesus' strength, right? Because without Jesus, you'll stumble and fall, right? Yes, of course. Well, I want to give you two points of application and maybe in that, maybe a test to see if this is true in you. It could have been multiple tests, but because of time, we'll just keep it to two. The one who's convinced, that's the first application. The one who's convinced he's in need of Jesus hungers to be among Jesus' body. Hungers, longs to be among Jesus' body. You see, here's the thing. Jesus said, you will get more of my strength when you assemble and you fellowship together. Remember the one another commands? 
Uh, Jesus made it very clear. The scripture made it very clear that Jesus is the head and he will pass his strength to you through his body. In other words, you cannot say, I am convinced I am desperate need of Jesus. And yet in the same mouthful, you would say, but I don't need his body. Unless somehow, theologically, you found a way to capitate the head and separate the head from the body. Do you gather with the saints for fellowship? Do you gather with the saints because you are like a, a hungry beggar looking for some crumbs of strength from Christ through his body? If yes, how often? How eager are you to sit at the feet of Jesus' body to be nourished and to be strengthened? You see, God never gifted your children or your wife with the gifts of the Spirit. He gifted his wife, his bride, the church. And so Christians who are so convinced that they are in need of Jesus, they flung away their self-confidence and at any cost, they would constantly throw themselves at the feet of the saints in order and so that Jesus through the saints would encourage them and comfort them and counsel them and even if necessary, rebuke them. This is what it means to have our confidence in God. To play the game his way, not our way. To draw our strength from him through the saints so that we don't fall away. So, are we, I got this kind of Christians? It's in a bad kind of Christians. I work it out on my own. In my own little island, kind of Christians, apart from the gifts of the Spirit that God blessed the church with, because I've got all I need on my own. The son of Kylan, the, the crown of silence, sorry, and live my own little life as a monk. Or, Do we have our confidence rooted in God? And we say, God, throw away my false doctrine. I will never correct you, Jesus. No, I will humble myself and come at the feet of Christ. Learn his theology, not my own. And then live this way. Right? So. First point of application is that those who are convinced that they are in need of a savior, you will find them where the body of Christ is. And they would be hungry to come again and again. They would not say, I don't need this. I've got to watch the movie. Or it's too hot on Sunday. I'm going to go out for a fresh air. 
They're hungry. They're in desperate need for Jesus' strength. And they know where to find it. And it is not in the ocean. It is not in a, a holiday beach somewhere. It's where the body of Christ is at. And they will make sacrifices so that God in Jesus, through his body, will bless them. Unless we read a whole different Bible altogether, this is the way that we find our confidence in God in a very practical way. Another, another application that we draw out of this is that the self, that the, the, those who denied themselves of their confidence and they rooted their confidence in God always know of their own sin far more than they are consumed and busy with the sins of others. Do you see your sins and weaknesses more than you see the sins of others? Well, let me put it another way and we'll finish with this. What if Jesus came here this morning and he said exactly the same thing that he said to the disciples? How should a church that really has her confidence in God and not in herself would respond to Jesus? How would we go? Would we pass a test? How would we respond if Jesus said to us what he said to his disciples? Let me tell you, let me, I've written something down and I want to share it with you. And I want to show you the right biblical way of responding to this, responding to, to Jesus' statement, biblically. We would say to Jesus, Jesus, if you are out of our sight, even but for a moment, judging by our track record, oh, we are doomed, Jesus. How come? We find it easier to grumble and complain, and we struggle to be thankful and grateful. We quickly condemn others. We rush to, to throw stones at our brethren that you called us to love. While we are guilty of the same sin they commit. We criticize others when they sin against us, but yet somehow we expect them to be gracious when, when we sin against them. But we are double-faced and we know it, Jesus. How many promises we vow to fulfill, but in our unfaithfulness we never kept. How many cords of worldliness we desire and we let these worldly lusts entangle us, and we never rejected them. How much flirting with the world we are guilty of. We're so busy looking for the newer couch, the bigger TV, the better car. Our children are stumbled by our lives. Our wives are struggling to follow godly leadership. Our Christians, brothers, are neglected because of our lack of commitment. Our loved ones are headed for hell, and we don't even shed a tear for them. Oh, the coldness of our own heart. Oh, our evil thoughts are deep 
and wicked and we're not even bothered by him. We, we would say with Paul, oh, wretched men and women that we are, who will set us free from the body of death? Jesus, we see this unredeemed flesh of ours like a, like a man with leprosy. We are full of pus and sores. We bleed lust and wickedness. And we rarely even mourn and lament over our condition. How can we not be disgusted and appalled by our sins? Brothers, if this is true, then how in God's name do we not lose all self-confidence? Do you know how we would respond to Jesus if we saw our sins more than the sins of others? We would say to Jesus, even though none may fall, yet we will. Guaranteed. You move away and we will definitely fall head down. Everyone else may stand, may stand strong, but not me, Jesus. Jesus, who in heaven do I have but you? And I'm so convinced that I need you on earth. More than anything else. What is it that sets Christians apart from the world? Not confidence in themselves, but that we are convinced that we are in need of Christ. We are convinced that we need Him. We are in need for His redeeming love, blood to forgive us. We are convinced that we need His unfailing love to fill us. We are convinced that we are in need of His supernatural strength to change us. And because we are convinced of that, we will obey him his way. We'll take the medicine that he gives us his way, not our way. Amen? Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. And, and as we close our eyes, I urge you today, in the name of God, that we would repent of any self-confidence that we would see in us, even a smell of it, that we fling it away from us as far as possible, that we would humble ourselves and place all our trust in, in God. Lord God, there is yet another beautiful and glorious hidden beauty of your son Jesus in his passage because even though Peter and the rest of the disciples were so arrogant and had this self-confidence even to that very last night before your departure. But how compassionate are you? How patient are you? You were patient with them from the beginning. And now you're patient with them, even at the point of the cross. And you, will con you have been continuing to be patient with them, even after the cross. How compassionate, how gracious, 
How loving that while we were still sinners and still are sinners, your love for us never diminished one bit. You always love us. You're always ready to forgive us. You're always ready to restore us back. The self-confidence that we would have in us does not affect you one bit in that it does not take away from you your eternal glory that you possess, but it affects us, Lord. It causes us to be stumbled and to grow in, in misery and in weakness and in frustration. And not to mention, we would, we would lose our eternal rewards. Forgive us, Lord, of this self-confidence. Take away this cloud of false assurance that is rooted in self. Sever it for us, Lord. Cut it off, Lord. Let us truly rest in you. Desiring to drink the milk that comes out of you, Lord Jesus, and not in the world. Help us, Lord, to cut off this self-confidence and follow you your way, Lord. Have your way in us and be magnified until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.